I invite you again to turn with me in your copy of God's Word, this time to our New Testament text. It is from Matthew chapter 5. If you are using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find our text on page 809. Uh, We began the year uh, with a sermon series uh, through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to the section of Matthew that he's probably the most well-known for, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It is deserving of really its own sermon series. We're just going to look at it in the context of uh, Matthew's gospel. We'll probably be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next uh, two or three months. It is chock full of some of the most memorable text uh, in all of Matthew's gospel. Uh, You probably uh, know it well. The book of Matthew actually transitions a number of times between a long section of narrative of sort of telling, Matthew telling us what Jesus has done, to these long sections of Jesus teaching himself. Uh, In fact, uh, commentators have seen five significant chunks of teaching coming from Jesus, possibly paralleling the five books, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, as God is giving his word and his law through Moses. In fact, it is significant that the Sermon on the Mount comes on a mountain, and where God declares to his people all throughout the Old Testament uh, who he is and his authoritative teaching. Jesus, as the king and authority, goes to a mountain in order to teach God's people. We begin our Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Uh, Beatitude is just the Latin word for blessing. So we begin with our uh, blessings. We could preach a sermon on each of these. Instead, we're going to take them all as a whole and see what Jesus is teaching us about life in his kingdom. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, which you follow along with me again in your copy of God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called Sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me again? Lord, these words are a treasure to our hearts and a balm to our souls. Lord, show your people what it means to live in your kingdom this morning. An upside down kingdom. Where the places that the world says are the place of cursing indeed in you, we find the place of blessing. Or show us how to embrace and rejoice in Christ and his blessings to us today. In his name we ask this. Amen. 
Well, parents, any kind of parents, usually wants what's best for their kids. When you were a child, you might not have thought your parents wanted what's best for you. Most parents want the best experiences and the best friends and the best places for their kids. Most parents today, if you have children, you want the best for your kids, right? You want your kids to go to the best schools or have the best curriculum and whatever type of schooling you choose. You want your parents to, I mean, parents want their kids to be on the best sports team. And if they're on the team, make sure they get a lot of playing time at the best position. They want them to have the best teacher of an instrument, the best teacher of their drama program, whatever it is. We want the best schooling and the best sports for our kids. We want the best spouse for our kids. You know, many parents think no one's good enough for their little Johnny, right? We all want what's best for our kids. The Bible tells the story of a mother who wanted what was best for her kids. We don't know her name. She's married to a man named Zebedee. You remember the name Zebedee from last week. Uh, Jesus' two, uh, two of his disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are fishing with their dad. And they're called away from that fishing trip, that livelihood, to go follow Jesus. And a couple years later, their mother, the wife of Zebedee, approaches Jesus with a question. Jesus invites her to go ahead and she says, grant me this request. That one of my sons will sit at your right hand and the other will sit at your left hand. She wants what's best for her kids, right? And what better place than at the right and the left hand of the throne of the king? Jesus looks at her and he answers of these two boys, his disciples. He says, are they able to drink the cup that I drink? What he means is, are they able to suffer in the way that I'm going to suffer? The... the, Reformer Martin Luther, he has spoken of two different ways in which Christians often view the world. And one of them he calls a theology of glory, and one of them he calls a theology of the cross. The theology of glory is a theology of success, of victory, of achievement, of having that best seat next to the throne of Jesus. And who doesn't want that for our kids? Who doesn't want that for ourselves? Of a a Christian life that is always in an upward trajectory of a church that is growing and thriving and is is going out to the nations, where we conquer all of our problems, where we are not anxious and not afraid, uh, and, and we don't have broken relationships anymore. We want a theology of glory now. But Martin Luther says that's not what Jesus teaches. He teaches that life in this world is rather characterized by what he calls a theology of the cross, a theology of suffering. That as we are called as disciples of Jesus to follow Jesus, we are not called in this life and this world into glory. We're called in this life to the path of the cross. That is a lowly path. That is a hard path. That is a path in which we may drink but a sip of the cup of suffering that Jesus himself drank all the way down. And we don't want to go on that path of the cross. Man, we want the path of glory. But Jesus comes to tell his disciples that in his kingdom, the place of blessing is on the path of the cross, not the path of glory. 
And what I want you to see this morning in our eight Beatitudes is that as we join Christ in his poverty, we are blessed with the riches of his kingdom. As we join Christ in his poverty, in his lowness, in his humiliation, in his affliction, as we go there, as we are united to Christ in his suffering and sorrowing, that that very place is for his sons and daughters, the place of the richest blessings of his kingdom. We're going to look at our eight Beatitudes, and I'm not going to preach an eight-point sermon. I know some of you would like to have lunch today, so it's not an eight-point sermon. I'm just going to have a two-point sermon this morning. We're going to look at the first part of all eight Beatitudes and what they tell us about the place of blessing. Where is the place that God blesses? And then secondly, we're going to look at the second part of all Beatitudes, of all eight of them, and we're going to see the promise of blessing. The place and then the promise. And each of these, I'm going to go ahead and give you the application right now so you can start thinking about it. We need to learn as the people of God to embrace the place of his blessing. Because in our natural flesh, we resist this place. And I want to show you this morning how to embrace it. And then when we get to the promises, our application for the promises is going to be rejoice. Rejoice in the promises of blessing. So first, embrace the place of blessing. And Jesus tells us something rather shocking for us as we read the Gospel of Matthew and for the first time learn what life in his kingdom is like. And all of those who have now left their family to follow him, he now tells them, here's what you've come into. And what we see is that God's place of blessing is often where we least expect it to be. God's place of blessing is usually where we least expect it to be. And Jesus is going to tell us where to go to receive the blessing of God. I remember when I was a boy uh, growing up in Durham, uh, I loved it in the summers when my parents would take me to the local minor league baseball games, right? The Durham Bulls, that kind of famous minor league team in Durham. And you remember if you go to minor league or any baseball games, there's always these kids running around with their baseball gloves on, right? Because they want to catch a foul ball. They want to catch a ball uh, and have that, that awesome experience. And so they want to buy tickets, right, wherever those foul balls are going to go. And most kids leave the game pretty disappointed. Uh, I've actually found out there are some adults uh, who have mapped out the exact hot spots in every stadium about where to sit. And then they go sit there. They need, they need a better hobby, right, than stealing foul balls from little boys and girls. <laughs> But God's place of blessing, we want to go catch it, but it's usually in the place we least expect. Let me show you, real quick, the eight places of blessing. The first, and the starting point, really, for the rest, is that blessed are the poor in spirit. The first place of blessing is the place of poverty. Now, it's clear that Jesus is speaking here not of financial poverty or material poverty. He is speaking of spiritual poverty, poor in spirit. Now, those themes overlap, right, in the word because financial or material poverty is a pretty good sort of illustration for us or impetus for us to move towards spiritual poverty. What does it mean to be spiritually poor? 
Uh, Jesus says in other places, it is to be a lowly and contrite at heart. It is to be not sort of in the, the lower spiritual class. It's to be at the rock bottom. That means to be bankrupt of anything before a holy and righteous God. To be utterly and entirely devoid of offering, spiritually speaking, anything to God. It is recognizing our total unworthiness before God. Last week we saw Jesus calling his hearers to repent. And the call to repentance is that call of recognizing our own unworthiness before God. People who think they're worthy before God don't repent. (laughs) The path to repentance is the path to seeing how bankrupt we are before a holy and righteous God. And as we look within and see our own spiritual poverty, it causes us to mourn and grieve over that spiritual poverty. That's the second place of blessing. You see, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to see that this is a list of eight, but also each one flows into the next. I mean, you can imagine a a stream of blessing sort of pooling up before it cascades right into another pool. And they sort of flow from one to the other and sort of recognize that we are bankrupt and impoverished before God is something to mourn over, to grieve over, to, to shed tears over. Blessed are those who mourn does not really refer to those who are grieving the death of a loved one or the loss of something. And that's what mourning means. But here, the particular focus of the mourning is on our spiritual unworthiness before God. It is why repentance is often accompanied in God's word with tears and with weeping. So look within And realize there's nothing there before God. And it's not just like I've gathered my family around and said, we've fallen on hard times. The bank account is empty. It's to say, and it's all my fault. (laughs) I spent it all on nothing. I gambled it away with my immorality, with my sinful decisions. It's gone. That leads to the grief and the mourning of our own sin. I know you've been there. Where you have come so face to face with the ugliness of your own sin, it causes you to weep over it and grieve over what you've said, what you've done, what you've thought. What does that produce in us? It produces men and women who are a place of blessing, meekness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Well, who are the meek? Who are the... Maybe we could say the humbled or the gentle. Well, meek people are people who have an accurate view of who they are before God. Right? Pride and arrogance is a lot of things. But one of the main things wrong with it is it, re- it reflects that we don't know who we are before God. But to be marked by poverty and grieving tears is to be a meek person. And meekness is actually, it it, it is a characteristic, but it's a characteristic that is expressed in how we relate to other people, right? A meek person is someone meek before the Lord, but also before other people. It is humble 
that, that is, that is gentle. How could you not be meek if you truly, to hunger and thirst in scripture, there's words that simply mean desire, to really, really want something. And so to be hungry and thirsty is to desire righteousness. And there's a debate over what does Jesus mean? That word righteousness can sort of be interpreted two different ways. I think he means both of them. I think he means, number one, personal righteousness. I think he, he means that when we come to a state of recognizing how empty we are, when we have cried all the tears, when we stand with, with a right place before God and others in our meekness, that we, we, we yearn that we would be made righteous. We are exhausted by our own unrighteousness. And we hunger and thirst that God would make us holy. That God would make us righteous. That he would restore and renew and sanctify us according to the work of his spirit. That we hunger and thirst for for personal righteousness. But that word can also be translated justice. And so there's a second aspect that we yearn for, and that is we don't only yearn for personal righteousness, we yearn for sort of a, a social right righteousness. We yearn for a righteous world and kingdom around us. If you have ever prayed, come Lord Jesus, <laughs> you have hungered and thirsted for righteousness in the world around you. You know, we read all the time uh, and we see scenes on the news of injustice. We see it all over our Facebook pages. We talk about it with our friends. And I, I fear that sometimes it becomes so political that we have to immediately defend or explain or accuse or, or put the tragedy that we have seen into some sort of political context that we can accurately defend and support our preconceived sort of political and social notions. And maybe there's a time and place for that. But the first time and place is to be a people that sees tragedies in the world around us and we yearn for justice. We know of all people, the church can look at any sort of tragedy or loss of life and say, that's not how it should be. Because we know how it should be. We can say that's not right. Because we, we know what is right. Because we know the word of God. We hunger and thirst that, that we would be more holy and just and that the world around us would be more holy and just. These first four Beatitudes, poverty, mourn, mourning, meekness, hungering, and thirsting. Now, theologians have called the first four the Beatitudes of need. They reflect our emptiness before God. They reflect our, our, our need before God. And from them flows the next four Beatitudes, the final four, which are blessings of action, right? They're sort of what we do. They describe, the first four sort of describe a little bit more of of our need before God. Uh, The second four are a little bit sort of how we live in the world around us. Look look at the first one. Blessed are the merciful, I mean, if, if you are filled with these first four places of blessing, how could you not be characterized as God's children, as merciful to the world around you? Uh, prick this person and should flow from our blood mercy. Because we know that we are bankrupt before God, that we are sinners 
telling other needy sinners where to find grace. To be merciful means to forgive the guilty. God's people are characterized as those who forgive the guilty. To be merciful means to have compassion on the needy. Because God has had compassion on us in our neediness. We have compassion on others. We are merciful. The next one, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in heart, it means to be morally upright. It means as well to sort of have a single-minded commitment to God. Now, I have to pause after this one and think and ask you, are you, are you starting to get a little bit discouraged? <laughs> I mean, I am at this point. I mean, I got to this one and I said, there's no way that describes me, right? <laughs> I mean, pure-ish, maybe I would put it, in heart. <laughs> But not pure in heart. There's a way in which these beatitudes, they bless us and they form us and they encourage us because it's who we are. They also convict us, don't they? They also sort of function like the law of God that reveals our failings, that reveals our sin. It's like a a, a mirror to us shining on our own flaws who would see them and confess them and, and pray that Christ would renew us as a pure-hearted people. Same is true, quite frankly, for the next one. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, God's children delight to bring about his peace, don't we? But when we're honest with ourselves, we're also pretty good at bringing about war and conflict, aren't we? (laughs) Sometimes we're described as peacemakers, and we know in our heart, sometimes we're better war makers. But we know as we understand and grasp the gospel that we delight to bring about God's peace. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted, he goes on to explain that a little bit more in the next verse. Verse 11 and 12, I, I don't think are a ninth beatitude. I think they are an application and explanation of the eighth beatitude. Those who are persecuted are those who are reviled, uh, who are uh, are uttered all things against. Now, he says for righteousness sake. That doesn't mean that, uh, that you're a Christian and you can kind of be a jerk to other people and they don't like you about it. It doesn't mean you're being persecuted for Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes we can be good at that, right? It's, it's actually our personality that's driving people away. It's not the gospel. It also means that we're not persecuted for righteous causes. There are lots of righteous causes that God's people stand for, and quite honestly, that sometimes Christians disagree on which side of a cause to be on. Jesus isn't talking about uh, political platforms or ideologies. No, he is clear when he says, persecuted on my account, for the name of Jesus, for standing with Jesus, for the gospel of Jesus. Now, we should not seek out persecution. We shouldn't try to go and find it. We also shouldn't shy away from it. We shouldn't avoid it because it scares us. What Jesus is really telling us here is don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If Jesus lived out the theology of the cross, why should we be surprised that we follow him on that same path? Why do we think we should live a theology of glory when he lived a theology of the cross? You put all eight of these places together and you may begin to think, how is this a list of blessing, right? I mean, if, if after church one day, one, uh, today, one of you said, hey, pastor, I want to bless you this week, I would think, well, you're going to buy me dinner, right? <laughs> I would think, oh, you're going to come babysit my kids. Oh, you're going to come mow my lawn. That's wonderful. Come bless me. But if you said, I'm going to bless you by making you poor, <laughs> I'm going to bless you by making sure that you're persecuted this week, I would think, that, that's not blessing. How is this, how, how does this, Jesus says we're blessed, But how in the world does this describe a place of blessing? This looks miserable, actually. If these eight things describe my week this coming week, it would not be a good week. Jesus says they're the place of blessing. Why is that? Well, I want to show you, as we put them all together, where do we find these places? We find them in Jesus. We find all eight of these beatitudes in Christ. Who do these verses best describe? They best describe Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Bible tells us that Jesus emptied himself when he came down to dwell among us. Blessed are those who mourn. The Bible tells us that Jesus weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem, the sin of Jerusalem, and the wrath of God that's going to come on sin. That causes him to weep and to mourn. Blessed are the meek. Well, the only other places in the New Testament that word is used, it describes Jesus. The, the, the verse, he's gentle and lowly. That's the same word for meek. He's meek and lowly. When he comes to Jerusalem and he's mounted humble riding on a donkey, that word humble is the same word for meek. He is meek riding on a donkey. Jesus is famous for his hunger and thirst for righteousness. He is zealous for the righteousness of the house of God so much that he drives out with a whip the money changers. He turns over their tables because he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Over and over again, he sees the crowds and he has mercy on them. He is the only one who can be described as pure in heart. He is a peacemaker, as Paul says, using that very language, that very word, says in Colossians 1. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. The Beatitudes describe Jesus. And specifically, they describe Jesus in his humiliation. That's a theological word for his time of suffering. They don't describe him in his exaltation, ruling and reigning on high. They describe him in his lowliness. And Jesus is telling us that as you are united to him by faith, as you believe on Jesus, as you are yoked to him, attached to him, married to him, united to him, as you are in him, these eight blessings describe you. And they describe your life. The application this morning is not go do these eight things. That's not it. The application this morning is to embrace what God is already doing in you. (laughs) Embrace who God calls his church to be. Paul writes in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the humility and the lowliness of the Christian is because we have the mind of Christ. Who, describing Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The Beatitudes call us to embrace the lowliness of Christ and the lowliness of his people. They challenge us to embrace the poverty of Christ and the poverty of his kingdom here on earth. I want you to consider today, this afternoon, this week, are you resisting these places of blessing? Are you resisting the theology of the cross and aiming for only a theology of glory. Maybe you're new to becoming a Christian and you've lived some of the things said here in the Beatitudes and you've thought to yourself, I really thought it would be different than this. (laughs) I thought it was going to get better by now. I thought I would finally arrive. I thought sin would finally leave me alone. I thought I'd figure out the secret of contentment and happiness and blessing. Have you been looking all along for glory, but all you've gotten is the cross? Jesus invites you this morning to embrace that because that's, that's where he is. <laughs> that's where, where he is. That's where he tells you to go because that's where the foul ball is going to go and that's where he's going to go bless you. And nobody else is there because they, they don't think that's where blessings are. The place of blessing is in Christ. It is in his humiliation. Embrace it. Embrace him. And you will find all of these blessings. Now, before we're done, there's still a second point. Because this isn't easy. (laughs) This isn't easy to go over and over again to the lowly place. So how do we endure the difficulties? I want to show you, and this will be a little quicker, To rejoice in the promise of blessing. Rejoice. As you embrace the place of blessing, you also are called to rejoice in the promise of blessing. Because there are eight places, there are also eight promises. And those eight promises are each paired with one of the blessings. Look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see the contrast? How can you be both poor and in the kingdom of heaven? It doesn't make sense in our minds, right? If I'm in heaven, I should be rejoicing and, and glorious and rich, overflowing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted with the spiritual comfort of the gospel. Many commentators think that Jesus in these first two promises is actually fulfilling the words of Isaiah chapter 51. Let me read a couple of these words to you. The spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Jesus has come to fulfill the words of the prophet that he is the anointed one who brings the comfort that only God can bring. He tells us in the third promise, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this is also a fulfillment of an Old Testament verse, this time from Psalm 37. Jesus says, uh, the psalmist says this, and Jesus fulfills it. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek here are the forsaken Israelites who will find their place back in the promised land. God will bring them back by his faithfulness, by his promises. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. They will see an end to their own personal unrighteousness and they will see an end to the injustices of the world around them. And they will be satisfied. No more yearning for it. Finally full. They will receive mercy, the mercy of God. It says those... Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This isn't a tit for tat. This isn't God saying the the more merciful you figure out how to be by your works, the more mercy God will give you. No, God makes us merciful. And it's only by his gracious promise that he extends that mercy to us. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can't see God. No one can see God. That's what the Bible says. But the promise throughout Old and New Testaments is to see God. And here, the promise, this is the greatest desire of God's people. Because right now we can't see his face and not be crushed and not be destroyed. But when sin is removed, we will see God face to face. We will be called, as the seventh promise says, sons of God. This is the promise of adoption. That enemies are made sons and daughters in his kingdom. We are brought in by his grace. And finally, blessed are the persecuted For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is again, the first and the last, the promise of the kingdom of heaven. Do you see every one of these promises is the promise of the gospel? That God and his son draws spiritually poor people and he makes us rich. And he brings orphans into his family and he brings strangers and exiles back to the land. This is the grace of God that he would extend to a sinful and rebellious people by his work on the cross, his own righteousness. Every one of these beatitudes, every one of these blessings, they, they assure us of the promises that are ours, that are true in Christ. They also invite us. They also invite us into his kingdom. Because I know that some of you here, and you're outside of that kingdom of grace and that kingdom of blessing. And here, the call of the gospel, it's not to bring anything. In fact, you come bankrupt. It's not to come claiming anything. You come with meekness. It's not to come achieving anything. That was to come in your nothingness and receive Every promise in Jesus. These are not generic promises that things will get better. Where do we find all of these promises? The the only place we find them is in Christ's kingdom. The place of blessing is in Christ. The promises of blessing are in his kingdom. Where are we promised 
to have no more tears and no more mourning. It's in Revelation 21. When the, the, the city of God comes down and the kingdom of God is brought to bear on the people of God. Where do spiritual exiles inherit the earth? Well, it's the new heavens and the new earth where we dwell with God. Where are we satisfied? We are satisfied where sin is no more and all wrongs are put to right and all injustice is righted by the king. It is there in his kingdom we receive mercy. It is there, Revelation 22 tells us, that we see his face. (laughs) And it is there that we are given the names of sons and daughters of the king. All of these promises come to bear in Christ's kingdom. But here's the rub. Here's the tension of the Beatitudes, the tension of the promises. Is it some of them are right now? But most of them are in the future. You notice that, right? The first verse, of the first beatitude, excuse me, the kingdom, that yours is the kingdom. And then the rest, the next six, will be the future. And then the final one, back to the present, yours is the kingdom. There, there is a tension here between what is already ours in the kingdom and that which will be. You see, the king is here now. John the Baptist was proclaiming uh, sort of in, the, in the, those, those twilight moments right before dawn that the kingdom is at hand. And then Jesus comes as the son who has come and has risen on a people and he proclaims the kingdom is at hand. It is dawn. The king is here. The king rules and reigns over his people that repent and follow him. His kingdom is already here. And so it is true that we can say those who are poor in spirit and those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's not fully here, is it? It's not, it's not quite yet. There's six promises that will be. We know the comfort of Christ now, but we still mourn, don't we? We have inherited the promises, but we, we're not there yet. And on and on. His kingdom has dawned, but it's not yet here in all of its glory, in all of its fullness. It's still the place of suffering and sorrow before it fully becomes the place of glory and rest. So how does Jesus close for us based on these promises that are some here now, but most to come? He says to us, to his disciples and to us in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. As you follow Jesus on the path to poverty, you know the rich blessings of his kingdom. The the very real and tangible anticipation of the riches and the glory and the reward of heaven. That, dear brothers and sisters, fuels us on the path of the cross. That is the joy that is set before us. That is the crown of glory that our king will will share with all of his adopted sons and daughters. And we endure in the moment. We endure in poverty and in meekness and in hunger and thirsting, holding tight to the promises of the kingdom. This was maybe the first sermon that the apostle Peter heard as he followed Jesus, at least in Matthew's gospel. It's the first one. And after Jesus' death and Peter goes on to become a rock 
in the early church. And we find in the book of Acts that he is beaten and he is told not to speak again of this gospel. We read that he and his other apostles, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were marked by rejoicing and gladness as they met Christ in his place of humility and sorrowing. Jesus invites his children this morning to embrace his place of blessing that we might rejoice in his promise of blessing. And we end where we began with that question to the mother who wanted the best thing for her boys. And Jesus said, are you able to drink, are they able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Do you remember her answer? She didn't have an answer. The boys had an answer, but she didn't have an answer. How would you have answered that as a parent for your kid? There's no glory here that is just the cross. How would you answer that for yourself? The Beatitudes are what it means to follow Christ. That the the lowly place is the blessed place. Embrace Christ this morning. Embrace his place of blessing. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you know how much we resist these places. You know how much we resist poverty and grief and meekness. Lord, you know how much we just yearn for glory now and always. Lord, give us faith to to wait and to endure. Lord, give us faith to to embrace where you have placed us, that we would not go kicking and screaming, but we would go willingly and with joy to follow you, that we would be glad to take up the banner of spiritual poverty. We would be glad to live in the world as those who are meek, who those who, are lo- who love peace, who, as those who are merciful beyond the kingdom of the world's comprehension. We are not this in our own flesh, O oh Lord, and we pray that you would make us so and in so doing that you would bless us with blessings that abound in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.